0: And apples can also absorb strong flavors from other things that they're being stored with. So, I mean, nobody wants apples that taste like cabbage (laughs) because, so keep your apples separate from the rest of your storage veggies. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This episode, we are returning to preserving the harvest. This is part two. And if you remember from two weeks ago when we talked about this the first time, we talked about freezing and um, your simple water bath canning. So this episode, we'll talk about cold storage, pressure canning, and dehydrating. But first, I want to talk to you really quickly again about our Patreon support page and what that is. I had a couple of questions of, okay, well, what is it and and what do you get? And the best way to answer that is for you to go to the Patreon page. But in short, patrons of the show get everything from exclusive content available only on Patreon.com to hotshot episodes Recorded on the fly in the greenhouse or in the gardens to just grow something merchandise Um, all the way to exclusive monthly videos on specific gardening topics suggested by, yes, patrons. So if you want more information, go to patreon.com slash just grow something to find out more. The link will be in the show notes. This is how you can support the podcast um, without actually like purchasing anything from any of our, our sponsors um, or our affiliates. So it's a great way to kind of keep more content coming, help me kind of cover some of the costs of running this podcast And now let's dig in to part two of preserving the harvest. So let's start with cold storage. I know what you're thinking. Okay, I can just throw it in my refrigerator, duh. Well, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. There are different ways to store your harvest in cold storage. That's more than just throwing your garden goodness in the crisper drawer and just calling it a day. So the first thing when I think about cold storage is preserving and then refrigerating. So think about your favorite like pickle recipe or jam recipe. It may not be that you're making these huge batches of eight to 10 jars of these goodies and then pressure canning them or water bath canning them and then storing them away. You may only be making a couple of jars and that's fine you can go ahead and and prepare them as usual and close them up in their jars, but just skip the whole canning part. You can actually just go ahead and do the recipe and then put them into the refrigerator and done. Just keep them in the back of the refrigerator and usually they'll keep for several months that way without having to worry about doing the pressure canning or anything else. So if you have the refrigerator space, you can absolutely do this. I know some people who have their like, beer fridge out in the garage or wherever. And if they make some jams or they make some pickles, I mean, they may not go through nearly as many pickles as what, I mean, like last year, I think I canned up, it was like 12 or 15 jars of pickles just for my husband and I. And we've gone through most of them. But if you only go through a couple of jars of pickles an entire year, there's no reason for you to go through the water bath canning process. You can just go ahead and process them the way that you normally would, and then just put the lids on them and throw them in the back of that extra beer refrigerator and they will be fine. And they'll be perfectly good to go ahead and use throughout the season. Same thing with your jams and your jellies. If you don't use a whole lot of this stuff, there's no reason to go through the whole rigmarole of water bath canning. Just do your normal recipe and then throw it into a jar and put it in the fridge. There are actually also recipes in some of the canning guides like the Ball Blue Look of Canning um, that are specific to refrigerator or freezer jams. And they're meant to just be done in the refrigerator or in the freezer without actually going through the canning process. So that is one way where that you are preserving your harvest through cold storage. Now there is also cold storage for your root veggies and some of your other like brassicas and stuff that you can do that is not in a refrigerator, but that is also not like canned or frozen. So this includes a lot of the root vegetables, the carrots, onions, garlic, potatoes, turnips, sweet potatoes, beets, and then brassicas like cabbage. So you can store them just sort of in the short term in cooler temperatures um, somewhere in your house, maybe if you have a cool area in your kitchen that's 50 to 60 degrees, they will store short-term on a shelf or in a dark, cool spot in your cupboard for, you know, a month or so without any kind of ill effects. But if you want long-term cold storage, something that's going to Keep throughout the entire winter, then you want to find a storage area within your house that is dark and dry. You're looking for a basement or a garage or a shed with plenty of ventilation. I mean, if you live in an older house and you happen to have a root cellar, well, go for it because that is the perfect place. That's the whole reason it was invented. <laughs> um, but any really any area that has a temperature throughout the off-season from between 35 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit is good. You want it to stay above freezing, but you want it to be fairly close to refrigerator temperature. Now, for best practices, you want to remove the top's Um, And any of the sort of roots off of the bottom of your veggies and then cure them if necessary. So this is basically drying them with heat and humidity for a few days, up to a couple of weeks, depending on the crop, and then you're going to store it. Um, You want to, usually the easiest way to do this is to pack them in boxes with newspaper in between the layers, or if you have some larger containers, you can bury them in sand or in peat moss, maybe in sawdust. This is really good for carrots and turnips and beets. Um, If you have like wet sand, you can actually keep celery from a really long time in one of these cooler locations. You can also harvest and store apples, pears, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, potatoes. These can all be stored the same as those other root veggies, but they do need a little bit more air circulation. Otherwise, they will just sort of sit and rot. So if you've got the fruits like the apples and the pears, you can wrap them in individual newspaper or paper slips and kind of store them into the boxes in even layers. And then if you have the cabbages and the Brussels sprouts, you can put them in buckets or in bags with a little bit of moist soil in the bottom and that'll that'll help to keep them preserved. Onions and garlic can be braided or stored in mesh bags that are sort of hung up or you can put them into shallow boxes um, or baskets. Apples though, just be aware They should be stored by themselves because they give off that ethylene gas. And so that can actually make the other things that they're stored near continue to ripen and they'll end up overripe. And apples can also absorb strong flavors from other things that they're being stored with. So, I mean, nobody wants apples that taste like cabbage (laughs) because, so keep your apples separate from the rest of your storage veggies. Sweet potatoes and winter squashes, and that includes pumpkins, they sort of like slightly warmer temperatures. So rather than putting them in an area that stays at that 35 to 40 degree Fahrenheit mark, you're going to want to look for an area that's closer to between 50 and 60 with a little bit more humidity. And actually when you're storing sweet potatoes, you want to make sure that you're curing them first. This is the thing about sweet potatoes. And I really should do a whole episode on growing sweet potatoes because they're a little unique, but You, when you pull sweet potatoes, you want to cure them at really high temperatures and high humidity before you store them. That's what gives them that really sweet flavor. If you take a sweet potato straight out of the ground and you just slice into it and cook it up, it pretty much tastes like a regular potato, but without the sort of fluffy texture to it. It's kind of, it's just really starchy. So you want to cure them at about 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit and about 80 to 90% humidity. That's where you get that really good flavor and you want to do it um, for about you know 10 days to two weeks. Then once they're cured like that, then you can store them the same way that you do the winter squashes at that slightly warmer temperature between 50 to 60 Fahrenheit. But make sure that you've got some air circulation Don't pile them up on top of each other too densely and too closely together. The other thing I can say about cold storage in this manner is regardless of what it is that you're storing, don't wash it before you store it. Just sort of knock off as much of the dirt as possible, but don't use any water. And it, it's kind of hard to convince people of this sometimes because they want to make sure they're nice and clean and then they put them away, but you really don't want to clean them until just before you're ready to use them because cleaning them and getting them damp like that, but just before storage is just inviting the little buggies to come in and cause them to rot. So just no water, just knock the dirt off and throw them in as is and then wash them just prior to use one other way to do sort of cold storage is to actually just leave a lot of these things in the ground. You know, carrots and uh, turnips and beets and you know any of those other types of root vegetables can actually survive these frosts. Now you don't want you don't want them to be in the ground when the ground actually freezes because then, you know, it sort of like locks around that root and it makes it difficult for them to go out. But until the ground freezes, just cover them with hay or straw and then dig them up as needed. As a matter of fact, you will probably find that these things have a much better flavor actually after they have experienced a frost because that cold sort of concentrates all of those sugars in there. I'm telling you, fall, winter carrots Oh my gosh, they are the sweetest, best tasting thing you have ever had. So allow them to just kind of stay in the ground until you absolutely have to pull them out and just harvest them whenever you need them. You can also extend the season by a few weeks with putting some cold frames over them or adding some row cover, and that'll give you a little bit of a longer harvest period before you actually have to store them. Once you do store them, just make sure that you are checking on them regularly and removing any items that look like they're starting to decay or they've got a bump or a bruise because if they do start to decay and they get any kind of a fungus or a mold, it will very quickly spread to the rest of the items that are being stored in the same area. So you don't want to ruin an entire batch, you know, that whole adage of, what is it? One one bad apple spoils the whole batch, or something like that. It, it's actually true. I mean, it you it will spread from from one veggie or one fruit to the next. So you want to check on your storage pretty regularly to make sure that you're pulling out any well bad apples. <laughs> so now we can move on to that mystery that is pressure canning. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. So we talked in the last episode about preserving the harvest a little bit about water bath canning, which is sort of the basic way to can things that um, have a fairly high acid level. Now we're going to talk about pressure canning. And this is the method that is necessary for low acid foods that can't be acidified. So this is going to include green beans, sweet corn, really most veggies other than tomatoes, any meats for you homesteaders out there, and anything with a pH higher than 4.0 six. It is the only safe method of canning low acid foods. So like I said in that previous episode, it doesn't matter if your grandma always canned her green beans by just doing a a water bath canner and nobody ever got sick. It's not the safest way for you to be able to do this. And honestly, pressure canning can seem a little bit scary, but I think it's only because people have seen these images of pressure canners that have exploded and they've, you know, caused all kinds of damage or they've caused injury. Let's, okay, let's clear up a few things about the dangers of pressure canning really quick. Pressure canners for use in the home were extensively redesigned beginning around the 1970s anything made before the seventies. Yes. Those were these heavy walled kettles with these clamp on lids and it was a dial gauge and they had this vent pipe and all this kind of weird stuff going on. And if you didn't maintain them properly, or if you didn't know how to use them, yes, you could overpressurize them and the lid would come off and it would cause all kinds of problems. Most modern pressure canners are lightweight, They are thin-walled, they have these turn-on lids fitted with gaskets, a lot of them have removable racks, they have automatic vents and cover locks and vent pipes and safety fuses, you know, they, they all have to be under, you know, um, labeled with the underwriters laboratory approval. Well, they don't have to be, but you should buy ones that have that UL approval to make sure that they are safe. Like today's pressure canners, usually they have a, either a dial gauge for indicating the pressure or a weighted gauge for indicating and regulating the pressure. So that's the type that I have. These weighted gauges are designed to sort of jiggle, every few minutes or several times a minute, and they just kind of keep rocking gently back and forth when they're maintaining the correct pressure. And it's a sound that I am very used to and I know to listen for because I know even while just hearing it, but I'm also I obviously have that visual dial gauge that tells me that it's maintaining proper pressure. It's this sort of melodic kind of sound and you understand, okay, all right, it's it's doing its thing. The pressure is not too high. It's not too low. I don't have to adjust the heat. It's good. Um, you really just have to read the manufacturer's directions to know how a particular weighted gauge should rock or jiggle <laughs> to indicate the proper pressure it has been reached and to maintain it during the processing. In fact, the funny thing is, I actually found my pressure canner at a barn sale. You know, I hadn't really considered pressure canning at the time. I was doing a lot of freezing. I was doing a lot of water bath canning. And we went to this barn sale and I saw the thing sitting there. And I was like, huh, you know, I really could. I could do a lot more than what I am um, if I got this thing. So I picked it up. It's a Presto 23-quart. Um, pressure canner. It's a little bit older, but I made sure that I had it tested. And thankfully, I live in an area where the university extension agencies will come out um, and they will do kind of community um, testing sessions where they will test to make sure that your. Um, dial gauge is correct um, and I made sure that the seal was replaced. I just ordered the, a new seal online because it looked like it had been sort of dry rotted so I wanted it to be safe and I mean I have used that thing for a decade and it's, it's bulletproof. Um, dial gauge canners will usually have a counterweight or a pressure regulator for sealing off the open vent pipe to pressurize the the canner. This is not the same as a weighted gauge. So it's not going to jiggle or it's not going to rock like a weighted gauge canner. Uh, The pressure readings on a dial gauge canner, that's exactly what it is. You you just look at that dial and it will tell you. And of course, there are also digital electric versions, which also happen to be by Presto, um, that make it even easier. They're sort of similar to the pressure cookers right now, but do not confuse A pressure cooker with a pressure canner. Like an old school one like mine can be both. I can use it as a pressure canner. I can also cook a roast in it as a pressure cooker. But those modern electric ones like the Instapots, those are pressure cookers only. They are not pressure canners. So make sure that you know what you're looking for and what you're buying when you go to look for a pressure canner. So why do we, why do we pressure can? Pressurized steam within a pressure canner creates a temperature of above 240 degrees Fahrenheit. And that destroys the bacterial spores that are naturally present in these low acid foods. And those are the spores that are responsible for botulism and other nasty things that can make us sick once you get it to pressure and you get it to temperature and then you take it out as the jars cool after they've been pressurized A vacuum is formed and it seals on the food and it prevents any new buggies from getting in and spoiling your harvest. To help you determine if pressure canning is for you, I will give you the basic rundown. Now, keep in mind, this does not replace the need for following specific instructions like through the Ball Blue Book of Canning or the National Center for Home Preservation website. This is just to give you an idea of whether or not pressure canning is something that you want to attempt. So, the basics of pressure canning is you would, you know, place two to three inches of water in the bottom of the canner. It should be hot, but not boiling. Um, Or if you're doing a hot packed food, you can actually have it hot or gently boiling. It all depends upon your recipe. Just make sure that you still have two to three inches of water when you're ready to load. The canner. You're going to fill the jars according to the recipe that you're following, allow the proper headspace, remove the air bubbles, wipe the jar rims, and put on the lids. These are all the same things as what we do for, like, the boiling water bath methods. Everything being clean and sterile and making sure that we have enough headspace. You set the jars of food on the rack in the canner so that steam can flow around each jar. It's important to make sure they're not touching each other. And then you fasten the canner lid so that no steam begins to escape once you heat it up except through the vent. Then crank the heat up to high and then you just watch until the steam begins to kind of seep out of the vent. And then you let the steam escape steadily for about 10 minutes. So this makes sure that all of the air that's within the canner escapes because that could actually lower the temperature and make sure and and make it to where what you're canning is is under processed. So you let it run for about ten minutes and then you close the vent. And of course, this is going to depend on the type of canner that you're using. If it's it's a weight or a valve or a screw. In my instance, it's a weight that I just pop on top of it. So if you have a dial gauge canner, you want to let the pressure rise very quickly to about eight pounds of pressure. And then once it hits eight pounds, then you adjust your burner temperature down just a little bit and you sort of let the pressure continue to rise slowly up until the correct pressure for the recipe that you're following. Usually the recipe is going to say between 11 pounds to 15 pounds of pressure, but that's going to depend on the recipe. If the burner were left on high, the pressure would be really hard to regulate once the correct pressure was reached. So, you know, let it stay on high until you get to about eight pounds and then adjust it and let it rise slowly. Once the, the, the pressure for your recipe is reached, whether it's 11 pounds or 15 pounds or whatever it is, then you start counting the processing time. So it's very similar to with the water bath canner. You don't start counting the amount of minutes that it's been processing until it reaches a full boil. The same thing goes for a pressure canner. Once you get that to the pressure it's supposed to be at, then you start counting the processing time. Now for weighted gauge canners, you go ahead and let the canner heat quickly at first, and then you adjust the heat down slightly until the weight begins to rock gently or jiggle two or three times per minute, depending on the type of canner you have. Mine has a tendency to go a little bit more so than two or three times. It just kind of makes this sound as it's just gently rocking back and forth. But whenever it gets to that pressure, then you start counting the processing time as soon as the weight does that. Um, mine is actually a combination, so I have a dial gauge and I have the weight on there, so I get to sort of monitor both. Um, but most of them, newer ones, it's either one or the other. Most of them are dial gauge canners, though. So um, at that point, you just kind of adjust the heat under the canner to maintain a steady pressure or just slightly above whatever your recipe calls for. If the pressure goes too high, then you turn the heat down just a little bit. You know, don't ever lower the pressure by opening the vent or lifting the weight during the canning process. You just want it to lower the heat a little bit. This is, this is where I think the scary part comes in with people where they realize that they sort of have to monitor this thing, you know, pretty steadily while it's happening. Because if you just crank that heat up and you walk away, it, well, yeah, the old ones would explode. There wasn't any sort of like safety mechanism involved. The modern counters absolutely have safety mechanisms that um, engage if the pressure gets too high. For example, mine has got that dial gauge, but then it's also got that weight. And if the pressure gets too high, that weight will come flying off. And all it's going to do is just vent that steam out of the canner. So it won't ever get to the point where there will be too much pressure for it to actually explode. But the older ones are the ones where it would just blow up in the kitchen and you would have all kinds of problems. So I think that's where a lot of the the fear of pressure canning comes in. A loss of pressure at any time during your canning process can actually result in the under-processing of the food. So if at any point the pressure goes down below the recommended pressure for the recipe that you're using, bring the canner back up to pressure, and then start the timing all over again from the beginning um, using the total original processing time. You never want to let it get too low. So it takes a little bit of practice to get it to where the heat level maintains the proper amount of pressure. But after a little bit of practice, you'll, you'll get it down with no problem. So when the processing is complete, you just remove the canner from the heat or turn the heat off and let the pressure in the canner drop to zero. This is going to take about a half an hour or 45 minutes in one of those, um, just sort of standard ones. Mine, it takes almost an hour because again, it's a 23 quart canner. It's, it's really big. Um, so it takes almost an hour. So I just turn the heat off and I walk away and I do something else. Um, don't rush the cooling. This is not a pressure cooker. You don't want to, you know, run it under some cold water or lift the weight to open the vent or anything like that. You just want to let it do its thing naturally. Older canners, those are considered depressurized when the gauge on the dial gauge registers zero. Or, you know, when if it's a weighted gauge one, if you nudge on it, it doesn't give any kind of steam off. Um, Newer canners are equipped with a safety lock. And so just like your Instapot, you'll hear when that safety lock unhinges. And that's when it's depressurized. The safety lock will drop into its normal pot, uh, its normal position. So when the canner is depressurized, just open the vent or remove the weight and then wait about 10 minutes or so and then open the canner. When you take the lid off, just be careful. Open, tilt the far side of the the canner lid away from you so the steam goes the opposite direction. You don't want that steam coming out at you because you can really burn yourself. Um, And then just don't leave the jars in that canner to cool because that's another way to kind of encourage spoilage. You want to use a jar lifter to remove the jars out of the canner and then place them on a cooling rack or on dry towels on the counter. Leave about an inch of space in between them and just sit them. let them sit there. Don't tighten the lids. Don't do anything. Just leave them untouched for about 12 to 24 hours. And then after they're completely cooled like that, just check and make sure that all the lids have properly sealed. Um, If they have, then go ahead and store them in your cool dark place uh, where you store all of your canned if a jar has not sealed, then the contents can be reprocessed. Just use the same directions that you did the first time or just throw it in the refrigerator and that'll be the first jar that you eat. So hopefully that sort of demystifies the whole idea of pressure canning for you. It is not as scary as it sounds and it you know really does give you some additional options for preserving the harvest of things that are low acid that generally would end up needing to be frozen. And like I said in the the previous episode, we don't like frozen green beans. So I always pressure can the green beans. Um, When it comes to sweet corn, we can kind of go either way. I either will do them frozen or I will take them off the cob and I will do it canned. Um, I find the can to be a little bit more convenient, but it just depends. There's a lot of different things that we like to just pressure can, um, and it just tastes better to us. So um, hopefully that makes you a little bit more confident, but it's it's not something that you absolutely have to go for unless you are really getting into um, preserving things, and you would prefer to have them um, shelf-stable or you just don't have enough space in your freezer, but you do have some more cabinet space. So um, I would encourage you if you are, are looking at canning, to start with water bath canning just because it doesn't require as much um, equipment as pressure canning, you do have to have the special canner for pressure canning. But if the main thing that you're growing, like I said, is like green beans or sweet corn and things that you really want to have jarred up, and that's what you are looking for, then go for it. Take the leap, Um, get into it and, and just make sure that you are reading the directions and don't be afraid because these, these, the modern day pressure canners um, are are much safer than the ones that you've seen in those black and white photos of things exploding in people's kitchens. There's not much better than looking out first thing on a sunny morning, gazing at my garden beds over a hot cup of coffee. As U.S. Marines, my husband and I drank a lot of coffee. As farmers, let's just say we should probably drink more water. The coffee we drink these days still has a military tie. We have freshly roasted coffee shipped to us every few weeks from Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle is a veteran-owned business, just like ours, but they serve up premium coffee and ship it around the world. When you join their coffee club, your chosen brew is roasted, packaged, and shipped free to your door on whatever schedule you choose. And with every purchase, they're giving back to military veterans and active duty law enforcement and first responders. Ready to check them out? Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee to save 20% when you join the Black Rifle Coffee Club. No commitments, cancel anytime. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee for 20% off your Coffee Club subscription. So let's jump into our final preservation method, which is dehydrating. Now, this is something that I am experimenting a little bit more with this year I have mainly before used it mostly for herbs I dry a lot of herbs it's parsley and oregano and sage and thyme and um, basil I do Italian blends I dehydrate things to make teas uh, and I actually at the market I will I sell a lot of these blends as well so um, and I've also done fruits I do a lot of Dehydrated fruits, whether it's banana chips—obviously uh, not from my garden. Oh, boy, I wish I could grow bananas. <laughs> we eat a lot of bananas, um, but you know, strawberries. As we're pulling the strawberries out, uh, raspberries, blackberries, those sorts of things, um, I will dehydrate those as well. But I'm—I think I'm going to experiment a little bit more this year with more of our veggies. You know, in the in the winter we eat a lot of soups. We do a lot of stew. Um, I do a lot of roasts and things in our crock pot and in the pressure cooker. And I just feel like, you know, dehydrating some of these things might make it easier to store and something that's a little bit, um, more conducive to slow cooking than like the frozen or canned veggies. I, I seem sometimes to think that when I'm doing things in a slow cooker and I've taken it from the freezer or out of one of the jars and I'm tossing it in, say like a sweet corn or a green bean or something, and then putting it into a slow cooker recipe, that it has a tendency to get maybe a little bit softer. And I'm thinking that maybe if I use dehydrated versions of these veggies, that the texture might be a little bit different because it'll be rehydrating as it's cooking within this liquid. So that's something that I'm going to try this year and I'll keep you posted as to uh, what I think as far as the veggies are concerned. So if you're going to dehydrate any of your harvest, you've got a couple of different versions of dehydrating that you can use. You can either buy um, a basic dehydrator. Generally speaking, you can find these either online or you can find them in your local hardware store or even a local department store. And it's sort of the round, basic dehydrator that has these little stackable trays that you can use. And that is what I started with. Um, And then I was using it so frequently. I mean, that poor thing was running like 24-7 and it just wasn't big enough. Um, And I really, it was getting ready. It was burning out, honestly. It wasn't quite working properly anymore. So my husband got me uh, an upgraded version. Mm, I want to say it was a Christmas, two Christmases ago. And it's a nine drawer um, dehydrator. It's not that high end Excalibur. <laughs> it's we haven't gotten that far into it, but um, it is a it is a, a better version than what I had before. It's working really well. I think I want to say the brand is like Huntsman or something like that. But you know, it ran pretty pretty constantly last season, um, doing all of the herbs, and I even did a greens powder that I, where I dehydrated like spinach and chard and kale and dried that all really good and then ground it up real fine. And I was able to use that as a veggie powder for like my smoothies or tossing into soups as I was cooking to kind of give it a little bit of a greens boost. So that worked really well. Um, But there are higher end versions like that Excalibur, other commercial type dehydrators You can also just either hang things to dry, which I mean, that works for herbs, maybe not so much with fruits and veggies. Um, But you can also just use your oven. Oven drying uses your home oven to slowly dry food at temperatures at around 140 degrees. They're not the most efficient, um, but it will absolutely save you the trouble of buying an extra appliance and you can test out whether or not um, dehydrating your harvest is something that you're interested in doing. So um, usually just want to make sure that you're not getting the temperatures above 140 degrees because you start to destroy some of the nutrients that way. But yeah, just, you know, and you can even just like set it to, you know, whatever the lowest setting is that you're um, your oven will go to, but then prop the door open, um, so that it allows some of that heat to escape so that it doesn't over, it's not, you're actually not cooking it. You're just drying it. Um, you know, electric dehydrators, regardless of what size they come with fans and elements to quickly and efficiently dry that food. Eventually you have no spoilage, Um, they also come most of them with some sort of a temperature gauge and adjustment style. Now the higher end ones are a little bit more detailed. I can tell you the difference between the little round one that I had, which was basically sort of a high and low, or I guess high, low and medium setting versus the one that I have now where I can actually set the temperature that I want it to be at and the time to where it turns off automatically, like that was a big, a big bonus. So that's extraordinarily helpful. Um, You know, I mean, it helps to speed or slow the drying time, depending on what you're processing. You can do everything from dried spices to fruit, chips to sun-dried tomatoes to soup mixes. And then if you're doing things like, you know, dried spices, you can just use a good old coffee grinder um, to grind those dried spices to use in all of your recipes. Just make sure that you kind of, you buy a coffee grinder that is specific to your spices. You don't Want to like use it for grinding oregano and then use it for coffee the next day because that's going to taste really weird. <laughs> um, you also can just use the old school way, which is a mortar and pestle, which I still use. Uh, it just all depends on what herb or whatever it is that I am um, I am processing at the time. You can do fruits, veggies, meats, nuts, seeds, sprouted grains herbs, you can make granolas. It's all fair game. So I'm actually looking forward to trying some new stuff this year. So uh, the basics of dehydrating, basically you want to throw them in the dehydrator as quickly after the harvest as possible. Because like I said, you know, we've always said uh, veggies and fruits will lose their nutrients and their flavor fairly quickly after harvest. Um, You know, things like apples and pears and potatoes, those are going to start to turn sort of a dark yellow, brownish color after you dry them. If you want them to stay white, you don't want to see any brownish or yellowish spots. You can actually soak them in a solution of lemon juice and water or like vitamin C tablets crushed up with powder, crushed up with water or vitamin C tablets crushed up with water. You can also buy citric acid that you can sprinkle across them. There's, I think it's called Flavor Fresh, I want to say, is uh, something that's available usually in the canning aisle that you can um, sprinkle on or mix with water. Just dip whatever you're drying in and shake them off quickly. It's not going to affect the flavor, but it is going to be a little bit more aesthetically pleasing after you have dehydrated them. Um, just like in canning, there are some items that are better blanched before they are dehydrated just to preserve the the flavor and the nutrients. Um, But in this instance, you're better off blanching them by steaming. I know when we talked in the freezing and canning episode um, that you know, you wanted to blanch them like in a boiling water bath. In this instance, you really do want to go with steaming. And some of the items that may be better blanched before dehydrating is going to be um, asparagus, broccoli, cabbage, carrots, corn, green beans, and kale. Now, that's kale if you're planning on rehydrating it in like a soup or a stew. But if you're trying to do kale chips, all I do is just really massage the kale before throwing it into the dehydrator. And that makes for really great kale chips. Um, For dehydrating, you just want to slice it into manageable sized pieces. Larger pieces are going to take way longer to dry. They may not completely dehydrate in the center, which would cause spoilage. So just make sure that the pieces are as evenly sized as possible and fairly small. Um, Layer whatever you're drying evenly on the trays and just follow the instructions for the time and the temperature that came with your dehydrator. If you're not using a dehydrator and you're using your oven. There are all kinds of resources out there. I'll link to a few of them in the show notes that will give you instructions on what temperature to use, how long to do so, and what size those things should be sliced into before you use them in your oven. Um, Just as an example, for fruits like apples, bananas, peaches, nectarines, the drying time is going to range anywhere from 6 to 16 hours I know that's a wide range. Um, It gets even worse with things like apricots, grapes, figs, and pears. They can take anywhere between 20 and 36 hours. It's all going to depend on the moisture content of the veggie that you're working with or the fruit. Um, Vegetables dry quickly or more quickly than fruits do, but they also spoil more quickly. So, depending on the temperature, the drying times for veggies are going to be anywhere from four to 10 hours. And that's going to be based on the vegetable and the size of the pieces. Just really kind of test them out, just physically, even just like biting into them to make sure that they are completely dry before you decide to store them. So where do you store them? So store them in clean, dry jars, either home canning jars, mason jars, whatever. Um, Or you can put them into bags or containers that have really tight-fitting lids. I've actually been saving up desiccant packages that come in other food items that I buy um, to include in things that I know take on moisture a little bit more easily, like like my fruit chips. I know fruit chips, once they're done, um, still have a tendency to just kind of take on the moisture from the air. So I will dry apples or bananas or whatever and uh, put them into mason jars, and then I will throw one of those desiccant packages in there to just to make sure that uh, that things are staying dry and uh, and and not going bad on me. So I know this was a little long, but I wanted to make sure that you had all the options available to you for preserving your harvest. Because hopefully, right now you're starting to see the bounty of your efforts. Um, If you have any questions about dehydrating or pressure canning or cold storage or anything that we talked about in the first episode, which would be freezing or um, water bath canning, feel free to reach out to me. You can email me at grow at podcast.com or you can reach out to me on Instagram at podcast. I will put links in the show notes um, to a few resources, specifically the National Center for Home Food Preservation. They have a bunch of different publications out there that will tell you specifically the scientifically safe way to be able to preserve your harvest no matter what type of method you choose. So I hope this was helpful for you. And uh, I will talk to you again next Tuesday for another Garden Talk Tuesday. In the meantime, I hope that you have a fabulous weekend. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and I will talk to you again soon.